we give you praise and glory for these next uh, minutes. Blessing on your reading and teaching. Amen. All right, first six verses of 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him and by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. Heavy uh, thoughts in that passage. Heavy verses there. But last week we began a new series through the epistle of John that I entitled Dear John Letters, the Epistles of the Beloved Disciple. We saw that Jesus, last week we saw that he is both the life and the light of believers. A, key, a few key points in that chapter one was that if we say we have fellowship with him who is light, and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and do not practice the truth. Verse 8 of chapter 1 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 said, If we say that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Verses in that first chapter of 1 John. But then we came to that great ninth verse, that ninth verse of chapter 1 that, that says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of the faithfulness and justice of God and the sacrifice of Jesus, we can have full assurance that when we confess our sins, he will be faithful yeah, that, that we will be forgiven and our unrighteousness will be cleansed. Both the penalty for sins committed and the pollution of unrighteousness within us have been fully dealt with in the eyes of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These... Uh, these letters of John that we're going to be looking at over the next number of weeks are quite pastoral in nature and were likely circulated around the churches under John's care. Uh, perhaps the churches that John addresses here uh, in these letters are the same churches that are addressed in Revelation in the province of Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey. Uh, that's where these letters went. Like when Paul, when Paul sent uh, letters, he would most often name the church that the letter was going to. 
but John isn't as specific about where he's sending his letters, but it's to the churches under his care. And so the people would gather together for their, their worship corporately, and these letters would be read to them. So these, uh, these letters are coming from John, the apostle, disciple uh, of love. He's, he's, he's their pastor, uh, maybe their, their bishop that was responsible for overseeing a number of churches. And so that's who these letters are going out to. Uh, throughout these letters, John defends his apostolic teaching and he refutes the false teachings and teachers who were on the rise in that day. John makes a stand for truth and he refutes the various teachings of Gnosticism, which we'll be looking at uh, when we come to those throughout these letters. Uh, Gnostics believe that they had understanding of hidden things, gnosis. Uh, gnosis means knowledge. They thought, knowledge. You know, the more we know, the more we are something that John had to go against because it wasn't so much about the knowledge as it was about the faith uh, in Jesus Christ. And so the Gnostics thought they were a spiritually elite group because we have all this knowledge. We have the deep spiritual truths. A lot of people that are looking at deep spiritual truths today when they haven't gotten past the uh, spiritual truths. Let's start with the basics. Let's start with the basics of loving one another, and we're going to talk about that a lot as we're in uh, this first letter of John. Uh, you know, faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and surrender to him and loving one another and obeying the Lord's in his word, that, that that's... That's where we need to start. And if we can focus on those things, well, but often we bypass the simple things like that and want the deep spiritual truths. Those uh, the deep spiritual truths, but uh, if you bypass the basics to get to those, you're missing it. You're missing it. The, uh, the Gnostics, they didn't believe in sin. The only sin for them was ignorance or lack of knowledge. Well, you don't know that? Well, that's your sin. You don't have this wealth of knowledge that... And so uh, when John spoke in chapter 1 of those who were walking in darkness while professing to be enlightened, he would have had the Gnostics in mind. Uh, these weren't enlightened as they thought. They were living in darkness, lying to themselves and others, and not walking in the truth. That's who John is addressing in this letter. He's, he's writing it to uh, people under his care, but he's refuting this teaching that, that is hey, the followers of Jesus and Jesus Christ. So as we, as we come to chapter 2, John deals with the conduct and behavior of those who profess to be walking in the light and in fellowship with God. Keep in mind that originally there were no chapter divisions in the Bible, and so the thoughts, at least of the first two verses in chapter 2, are closely tied to the thoughts at the end of what we call chapter 1. So it just flows right in there. It's the same flow of thought from chapter 1 to chapter 2. 
The first two verses of, of chapter 2, we see Jesus as our advocate and as our propitiation. And we'll talk about that just a few minutes. John addresses his readers with an endearing, my little children. I know what he's going to say. Hey, kids, we got a, something one for you. My little children. Uh, as a pastor with a true shepherd's heart, John saw those under his care in much the same way as a parent would see his or her children. He uses, he uses that, that phrase, or that reference to little children seven times in, in this uh, first, first letter. Jesus himself addressed his disciples on occasion as children when warning about the dangers of riches in mark chapter 10 verse 24 he tells his disciples children how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of god in john chapter 13 just before giving the new commandment to love one another he says little children i shall be with you a little longer you will seek me I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. And now I say to you a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this will all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So he's talking to his disciples, but he addresses them as little children. Then after his resurrection, we touched on this, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, after the resurrection on the shore to the disciples who were out fishing, they're out fishing and Jesus is on the shore, he's actually preparing breakfast for them, he calls out to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. <laughs> if you've gone fishing, you haven't caught any fish, and if Jesus would say, Hey, did you catch anything? He might say, no. That's how I'm picturing the disciples responding. I mean, they don't know yet that it's Jesus on the shore. Some guy on the shore asked me how the fishing is, and they're disgusted because they haven't caught anything. And he might say, hey, you cast your net over on the other side. And they might say, fish. So John is addressing his disciples in much the same way saw Jesus addressing his disciples to himself during the Last Supper. He writes to, his, to encourage his disciples to not sin. Why is he writing this? He says, I write to you that you may not sin. He talks about, okay, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves. And if we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. But he, now he says, I'm writing that you don't sin. I'm writing so that you may not sin. It says in verse, the second half of verse 1, if anyone does sin, I'm writing that you don't sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous.
This isn't an excuse to go ahead and cheat. God's not giving them an out. He's not cheapening the grace of God by saying that if you sin, we have an advocate. He's saying in case you happen to sin, advocate. Somebody to stand there beside you and fight your case for you. So this is not a freedom to or permission to sin. It's much like Paul when writing to the Romans about being under grace and not under law. And he asks the, the readers there in, in Rome in chapter 6, verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Hey, I'm under grace. Grace is not about permission. Grace isn't permission to sin. Grace is about forgiveness. Paul wasn't giving them a go-ahead to sin because they're no longer under the law. Grace. So in case they were thinking that, Paul asks, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Well, Paul's response is, by no means, or far from it, or as the King James says it, God forbid, God forbid that you would even think something like that. That it's okay to go ahead and do that because we're not under the law but under grace. We might say it this way, don't be ridiculous. Don't talk such nonsense. Of course you don't go out and sin because you're under grace. Foolish talk. But if, if we sin, have an advocate. Jesus is our advocate. The word used here for advocate is the same word that Jesus used in John 14, 16 when he said that he would send the Holy Spirit to be our comforter. The same word. Same word. And the word means, if you look at that word, Transfer, uh, tra uh, translated here as, as advocate or as comforter. The word is uh, parakalio, para as in parallel, alongside, side, and kalio is to call. And so it's to call alongside with the purpose of helping. And so the Holy Spirit, when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was sent to be alongside of us, to help us. When we see Jesus as our advocate, he is called alongside of us to plead our case before the judge. Because we have broken the law, we need an advocate. We need an attorney to plead our case. And our attorney, our advocate, our lawyer is Jesus. 
and he's pleading our case on, on behalf of us before a holy judge. He is the counsel for the defense, and we are the defendants. And he's there with us pleading our case. When we sin, Jesus pleads our case. Now, the one who brings the accusation against us, of course, is the devil. He is the accuser of the brethren. And so he brings the case against us before God, and Jesus pleads our case. But we saw last week that Jesus took our place. So God is just in forgiving us. He's not only faithful to forgive us because he promised he would, he is also just to forgive us that he doesn't just let us off the hook because the debt of sin had to be paid. Well, Jesus paid that debt for us. And so he can justly forgive us because the debt has been paid by somebody. It doesn't have to be paid by us. It has to be paid by someone, and Jesus paid it. And so when Jesus, as our advocate, stands by us before the judge, who is the Holy Father, he pleads our case and says, you know, the case has really been settled. The case has been settled at, at the cross. Accusations keep coming, but the case is settled. The price has been paid. The debt has been canceled. There we go. There we go. We don't fear the accuser because Jesus And then verse, we get down to verse 2. Not only is Jesus our advocate, but he is the propitiation for our sins. There's a fancy theological word for you. And it's used twice by John. Second place is in uh, chapter 4, verse 10 of, of this letter. Multiple places in Scripture where that word is used. And simply speaking, I mean, it's a very rich, filled with meaning kind of word, but simply speaking, it means satisfaction. Satisfaction. Sin demands that the wrath of God be poured out upon sin and punished. But through his atoning sacrifice on the cross, that demand is satisfied. As Jesus was our atoning sacrifice that covered our sin, that satisfied uh, that wrath of God that was going to be poured out upon our sin, Jesus covered it. He satisfied it. Because that demand has been satisfied, God can justly forgive us, as we saw last week. Isn't it good to have someone pleading your case? Jesus, our He's the propitiation. He's the satisfaction for the debt that was due. He himself. Not just what he did, but it says he himself. He himself is the propitiation. 
guess what he did? Covered the sin, but he himself is the propitiation for our sin. And Jesus and his sacrifice is far-reaching. His sacrifice isn't just for a select few, but as it says there, not for ours only, our, our sins only, but also for the whole world. The sacrifice that Jesus made is sufficient for anyone in the world who would come to him by faith. There are no limits to the extent of the reach of his sacrifice. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, whoever they are, whosoever they may be, can find forgiveness and find peace with God. Verses 3 through 5. You might call this the test as to whether we know the Lord. We often hear We might speak of another and say, yeah, he or she knows the Lord. We might ask someone, hey, brother, do you know the Lord? Or perhaps a more pressing question is to ask ourselves, ask ourselves, do I know the Lord? We who have professed to know the Lord, maybe we need to ask ourselves kind of regularly, Lord, do I really know you? How can I know if I know the Lord? You'll hear the phrase, I know that I know that I know. How do you know? No. John gives us an answer to those questions. By this, we know that we know him. an obedience involved? <laughs> I just thought I had to come to the altar, pray a prayer, and say I'm good to go. Call to obedience to those who profess to know him. Uh, we sometimes like to skim over that. So John gives us this, this answer. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The extent of our obedience to God is the ruler to measure the depth of our knowledge of him. That again, just in case someone here is writing that down. The extent of our obedience to God is the ruler to measure the depth of our knowledge of him. It's not knowledge about him, but knowledge or knowing him relationally. You can read a biography of somebody, even an autobiography of somebody, and you know about them. 
about their life, their accomplishments, their shortcomings. You know the person. You know the information about the person, but you don't know the person. And so John is talking about knowing the person, not about the person, knowing the person. It says in verse 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Much like chapter 1, verse 6, that says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So walking in, in disobedience is equated with walking in darkness. You know, Jesus, you say you're walking in the light, but if you're walking in disobedience to his word, walking in darkness. And we can know a great deal about God and still live in rebellion against him. Him in the mirror in the morning. I don't know. We can know a lot about God and still live in rebellion against him. If we, should, if we profess to know him, we should live as one who knows him. must understand that John is not reducing obedience to a form of legalism. I got to this hoop and I got to do this law and keep this commandment and follow this precept and then, and, and then I'll be truly in a place where I know God. Don't put the cart before the horse here. Those things don't lead us to knowing God. They should result from knowing God. Because we know him, we love him, and obedience is our delight, not our burden. Obedience to God isn't a condition to knowing him, but it's our response to knowing him. Lord, I know you, and because I know you, Relationship comes first. The obedience should flow out of that. And it's not a burden. It should be our delight. We see this again when we, we'll see it again when we come to chapter 5 and verse 3. It says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not Some people get this idea that, man, you Christians, you can't do anything. The things they're talking about, it's like, why would I want to? Love God. I know God. Why would I want to do those things that aren't godly? My delight is to know him. My delight is to love him. My delight is not into doing that junk that you think I have to give up. No, you don't give up those things. You get rid of those things. 
of delights to do his will. True love exists in the heart. It will be carried out. We keep his word. The love of God is perfected in us. Verse 5 tells us. As we walk in obedience to the gospel, God is at work within us perfecting that love. God, we obey him. When we obey him, we love him more. Love. Obedience. Love. Obedience. Obedience. The two-step program. Not a love, 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 love. No. Not supposed to hop through the Christian life. The Christian life is a walk. It says by this we know that we are in Him. Second half of verse five. Love for God and obedience to God should be inseparable. One cannot fully develop without the other. Then we get to verse 6. John speaks of the importance of following the example of Jesus. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. As he put out the call to his disciples, he said, follow me. That wasn't merely a call to walk behind him, but to learn from his teaching and his example and to become hands-on apprentices duplicating what he showed them. But a disciple is not just a student in a classroom, but a hands-on apprentice. We'll say 1 Peter, if it's not that, it's 2 Peter. Chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Example, now just follow in his steps. See footsteps in the snow. We've used this illustration before of a parent walking in the snow and the little child wanting to follow behind and stepping in those footsteps in the snow that the parent had already laid down. Well, Jesus has laid down the footsteps in the snow. Let's see if we can take steps to put our footsteps in his footsteps that have gone before him. The example to follow and we are to follow. A book, uh, very familiar book to many of you, called In His Steps. 
by Charles Sheldon. And he, takes, he takes the title of that book and the theme of that book from this passage in uh, <coughs> First or Second Peter 2.21. It's one of the best-selling novels of all time. It's one of the top selling Fifty million uh, copies sold. In the book, Pastor Henry Maxwell challenges his congregation to not do anything for a whole year without first asking the question, what would Faced with a situation, what would Jesus do? Faced with a decision to be made, what would Jesus do? A question would be asked, what, what would Jesus do? And so in the book, the pastor challenges his congregation to don't do anything until you ask yourself, what would, what would Jesus do? WWJD uh, bracelets that you see so many people uh, still wearing and bumper stickers and stuff. It's inspired by this book, In His Steps, by Charles Sheldon. His steps are our example to follow. His walking, walking in the ordinary. Steps that he's called us to follow. His daily life. In those steps. Only Peter was called to follow his steps onto the water. We're not called to that. We're only called to follow Jesus' ordinary steps on a day-to-day basis. Luther worded it this way. It's not Christ's walking on the sea, but his ordinary walk that we are called How did Jesus walk? He walked, first of all, in obedience to the will of the Father. Will of the Father. That's how Jesus walked. How else did he walk? He walked in love for God and love for others. Now, we may be able to make a whole long list in answer to that question of how did Jesus walk. But we would do well to just start with walking in obedience to the will of the Father, loving God and loving people. If we start there, everything else kind of kind of would fall in line. We don't need to complicate to get so complicated with how we live out our Christianity. Just be in God's word what his will is and walk in that. Love God and love one another and let's walk in that. And when we've mastered that, I think those two are enough to keep us uh, occupied for a while. Will and walking in love for God and other people. So.
Remember, Jesus is your advocate. He's, he's there for you. He's by your side. He's pleading your case. He's standing with you. He's, he's, uh, he, he's got this behalf on your side, pleading your case, interceding before you, for you. And then also from these verses today, just a reminder that professing to know God demands that we demonstrate our love for him by our obedience to him. Which is walking as Jesus walked. Father, there's uh, a lot of very challenging verses in uh, in the this passage that we read today and looked at. And Lord, we uh, sometimes don't like to be challenged by your word, but that is the purpose of your word, is to challenge us to a, a, a closer walk to y- with you, a closer and deeper walk with you. Lord, we, we see that challenge. May we, may we answer to that challenge in a in a way that would honor you. Lord, we ask that you would reveal your will to us, your will, you know, the general will of God for our lives as seen in Scripture. But sometimes there are specific will aspects of your will that we can't just open a page of scripture and, and read what it might be on our, our daily decisions we have to make that might not be covered by scripture. We need to know your will for our lives on a personal level, general level and on a personal level. So I pray, Lord, that you would reveal your will and that we would desire to walk in that will of yours and also to love you and to love people. So simple, but yet at times so difficult, pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your love and then may that love just flow out of us to others. Lord, as we've been challenged, now motivate us to respond to that challenge. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are there for us. You are there on our behalf give you praise and glory. We give you praise and glory, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, with a song. Upbeat. Put Sally on the spot time. Sure, let's trust and obey. Because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So let's, as we sing this, as the song ends, we'll be uh, dismissed. But tonight, 6 o'clock, come on back for uh, Sunday Night Fire with special guest Todd Marshall leading the closing. When we
we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt nor a fear, not a sign or a tear, can abide while we trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no to trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and to trust and